I was recently listening to a sermon about suffering and God and how the two relate, ultimately about why God allows us to suffer. And the premise that this pastor suggested, and I, I empathize with him because this is a hard talk to give, but the, the premise that he put forth is that God allows suffering because God knows the people that we will be on the other side of suffering. God knows how much we'll learn and grow from it, and therefore, God is completely justified in allowing us to suffer. At first blush, this isn't a crazy idea. You've probably heard it before. You may, you may totally agree with it. But as soon as I heard this the other day, I couldn't help but cringe. It's not that I think that this is never true. The problem is when you absolutize suffering this way, the nature of suffering this way, things get really messy really quick, and God becomes kind of a monster. Because you run into situations like I quickly did. As I was sitting there listening to the sermon, I kid you not, this happened while I was listening to the sermon, I got a text message from a friend who said, um, I'm really struggling with uh, this new church that I'm at. Everyone talks about how good God is and how he gives us good things. But if that's true, then why did God allow me to be violently abused as a child? Ooh. And my immediate thought was, I really hope that my friend never hears the sermon that I'm hearing right now, because what they would hear is God allowed you to be abused as a helpless and innocent child because he knew that you'd be better for it. Yikes. Now, I, I know the pastor who was giving the sermon, not terribly well, but well enough to know that, that this is probably not what he meant, but it's what he was saying. And it's where this bad theology of suffering leads to, that, that suffering is always the result of God wanting to teach you and grow you and mature you. Again, it's not that this is never true, but I think a more accurate and more holistic view of the truth about suffering and the nature of suffering is a bit more complicated and nuanced than that. And lucky for us, that's exactly what we're talking about from the section of Job that we're looking at tonight. I love when, when things like this happen, when real life when real life questions collide with scripture, especially if it lines up with what we're talking about. So I'm going to pick right back up where I left off last week after the third cycle of speeches, which ends in chapter 31 of the book of Job. In chapter 32, all of a sudden out of nowhere, this total rando appears and just starts yapping. Uh, chapters 32 through 37 are the long-winded dissertation of a man named Elihu, who we're told was with Job and his three friends the whole time, but he's a young man, so out of respect for his elders, he held his tongue up to this point. But when Job finally rests his case, Elihu is burning hot with anger against Job for questioning God the way that he has been. And Elihu's also angry with Job's three friends because of their failing to successfully dismantle Job's claims and their failure to properly defend God's honor. So Elihu is so angry that he says, like an erupting volcano, he finally has to speak. And boy, does he. Uh, he attacks Job for his audacity to question God, um, but not before chastising the three friends for their shortcomings in their arguments. And he even at one point says, listen, I'm going to tell you all what's really going on, and you can bet I'm not going to use your terrible arguments, talking to Job's three friends. But then <laughs> he basically proceeds to make the exact same arguments that the three friends have been making the entire time. Elihu rants on and on and on 
and on uninterrupted for several chapters. Again, saying the same things that the three friends have been saying the whole time, save one slight variation, um, which we'll talk about. And then he concludes by talking about how wonderful and beautiful and mysterious and full of wisdom God is in chapter 37. Now, if you'll remember from last week and the weirdness I mentioned with chapter 28 of the book of Job, you will remember that Elihu's speech does not end at chapter 37. As I said last week, chapter 28 is horribly misplaced and it should come after chapter 37 because it's actually the conclusion of Elihu's speech. In chapter 37, Elihu is extolling the wonders and the mysteries and the wisdom of God through metaphors of creation in the sky above. And then he moves to extolling the same virtues of God, especially his wisdom through metaphors of the ground below in chapter 28. Chapter 28 literally starts in the middle of a thought. It alludes back to things said and connects back to themes started in chapter 37. How it at some point got mixed up and put as chapter 28 is anyone's guess. Um, none of the Bible had chapter or verse numbers until way, 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 way later. So it's not as though these things were numbered and someone just <laughs> got them wrong. Um, maybe it was just a, you know, stack of papyrus and someone spilled it and it got out of order and stayed that way forever. We really don't know. Uh, it could have just been a careless or tired copyist. Who can say? But it's pretty clear, in my opinion... I am not an expert on ancient Hebrew, but based on what I've read from people who are experts in ancient Hebrew, chapter 28 should come after 37 and is the conclusion of Elihu's speech. Now, on top of this disordering of chapters, it's also pretty clear that Elihu's entire existence in the story is a later addition that the original author did not write. For one, Elihu is a Hebrew. His name and the name of his father, which is mentioned for some reason, are both incredibly Hebrew. Elihu also uses many Hebrew-specific words that appear nowhere else in the book, which is odd since the author up to this point has gone to great lengths to make it clear that none of the other characters are Hebrew, that this isn't taking place in Israel, that it has no connection to um, the people of Israel in that regard. The sudden insertion of a very Hebrew character is wildly out of place and inconsistent. On top of that, the style of the Elihu section differs significantly from the rest of the book. The poetry is still good, but it's inferior to that of the rest of the poem. He uses the most words to say the least, and he adds very little that is new or hasn't already been said before. If all of that weren't enough evidence for Elihu not belonging in the original story, his appearance completely disrupts the natural and, and more climactic and dramatic flow of the story, which would be Job makes an oath of innocence, Job s serves God a legal summons, and then against all odds, the God who has been silent up to this point appears, finally, which made me cry last week. Given all of this, it seems clear that Elihu was a later addition in the story. It's as though some later reader of the story was not happy with the way that God was being portrayed in the story or the answers that the three friends were, were giving and decided to insert himself and his own thoughts into the story to correct the friends. Despite it being a later addition, um, it's in there in what we have today. 
And so we're going to talk about it. I think uh, <laughs> it's ironic and hilarious that this later author, who was probably young themselves, makes this character, Elihu, a young man, because that's exactly how Elihu comes across. A young, idealistic, and arrogant person lecturing people far wiser than he about things that he doesn't yet actually understand. Elihu honestly reminds me a lot of myself when I was in my early 20s and knew everything. I had an answer to every question and generally thought that it was insane that people older than me didn't have the insight that I did, that they couldn't see the, the things that were just oh so clear to me. Maybe you can relate, or maybe you know someone who is like that, or maybe you knew me then. <laughs> um, to Elihu, even, even more so than Job's three friends, the world is completely black and white. To Elihu, the world is easy to understand and easy to explain. Therefore, all this turmoil around why Job is suffering uh, drives him crazy, and he can't help but explain how it's also very clear um, to his elders, which he does, again, by saying the exact same things that they've been saying. <laughs> God doesn't make mistakes. God punishes the wicked. God blesses the righteous. Therefore, based on this, based on the way that we all know the world works, Job, it's clear that you're evil. You're not better than God. How dare you question his justice? Repent now and be restored. Thanks, Elihu. Hadn't heard that before over and over and over again. So Elihu does, however, emphasize something that Eliphaz just kind of alluded to a while back that I didn't really address about the nature of suffering that I wanted to talk about at some point in this series. And so we're going to. This is a really common answer to why God causes or at least allows people to suffer that I still hear people saying all the time today, and I still think sometimes today, but I think it's ultimately misguided. So speaking to Job, Elihu says this in Job chapter 36, starting at verse 8. When things go badly, when affliction and suffering descend, God tells the afflicted where they've gone wrong shows them how their pride has caused their trouble. He forces them to heed his warning, tells them that they must repent of their bad life. If they obey and serve him, they'll have a good long life on Easy Street. But if they disobey, they'll be cut down in their prime and never know the first thing about life. But those who learn from their suffering, God delivers from their suffering. Oh, Job, don't you see how God's wooing you from the jaws of danger? how he's drawing you into wide open places, inviting you to a feast at a table laden with blessings. Okay, so Elihu, I mean, most of that probably sounded familiar to you. All of it did. Elihu is saying, you see, Job, your suffering is God's way of teaching you things. If you learn from it, he'll deliver you from it. This suffering is about God shaping you more into the person you're supposed to be. So stop resisting. Be shaped. He's wooing you into a more blessed life. Like I said, this is the same thing that many of us still hear today about why God allows good people to suffer. Because it's his way of shaping and molding them into who they were created to be. Now, it's not that I'm saying this is never true. Nor am I saying that growth and maturity and wisdom aren't a result of suffering. I think both of these things can be true. 
The problem comes when we universalize and absolutize that suffering is always God trying to shape and mature someone. Elihu is essentially saying to Job, God killed all these people. God killed all your kids. God took away your health, all to teach you something and to shape and grow you in some way. Job, you matter more to God than all these other people to the point where their lives were just tools for God to use to teach you something and to grow you in some way. Mm. I'm sure that you've heard this before. Not, not in those exact words, but you've been told that suffering is God's way of maturing and molding and shaping you. Suffering is God's way of building your character. This is an incredibly narcissistic view of suffering that not only makes God out to be a monster, but it puts us at the center of everything. It makes us the most important part of any story that we're a part of, any tragedy, any suffering, any pain. It's all about us. And in my experience, this view of suffering is, is typically only held by people who haven't suffered or haven't seen someone they love really suffer. And when he was younger, C.S. Lewis believed and taught and wrote that allowing people to suffer is God's way of helping us become stronger people. He often talked about how pain is the chisel the divine sculptor uses to shape us into people that he envisions us capable of being, which sounds really great. And again, I'm not saying is never true, but all of this was before he met and fell in love with and married the love of his life, Joy Davidman. And less than three years after marrying her, he watched Joy die a painful and agonizing death from cancer. And after witnessing the utter suffering of someone that he loved so dearly, Lewis changed his mind. He no longer believed that suffering is the chisel that God uses to perfect us, but instead believed that what his wife went through could not possibly be God's will. And the question of why God allows it and, and allows other, other righteous people to suffer, he came to believe is beyond our understanding. Like I said, I think it's undeniable that we can learn and grow and mature and become more of the people God created us to be as a result of suffering. That's been true in my own life. But the way I see it, the fact that suffering and tragedy can be even somewhat redeemed to teach us and shape us and mature us and give us more wisdom is 100% a picture of God's grace and goodness to us. It is God working to bring good out of whatever happens to bring good out of what is otherwise just so dark and heavy and destructive and tragic. Romans 8.28 says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. This doesn't say that God wills all things. It says that in all things that happen, he works for the good of those who love him. Elihu would disagree with Romans 8.28, and he would say that God does indeed will all things, and in fact, that God caused suffering and pain, even of other innocent people, to build your character, Job. Elihu's is a narcissistic view of suffering. It's a narcissistic view of God's action in the world that ultimately always is about him. It's always for him, or in this case, Job. But the truth is, based on what we read in Romans, the building of your character, the maturing of who you are, the softening of your heart, 
the growth towards Christ-likeness that comes about as a byproduct of pain and suffering and tragedy is sheer grace. Do you see the difference? One view um, is incredibly simplistic and narcissistic. It puts us at the center stage of everything. These other people died so that you could build character. This tragic thing happened to innocent people also you could learn and grow. That's narcissism. The second view sees the good that often comes out of suffering, the ways that pain and suffering shape us into people we would never be otherwise, as being all about God's grace. The fact that people often become more loving, more joyous, more peaceful, more patient, kinder, more whole, more gentle, more steadfast, and more sober. The fact that people become more conformed to the image of Christ as a result of suffering and tragedy and pain is all because God works to bring about good from evil and tragedy and hardship and suffering and pain that inevitably occur in this life. Maturity is a result of pain. Any good that comes as a result of pain and suffering is all grace. It doesn't mean it was the point of it. The fact that good comes from it is all grace. It's pure grace that anyone can look back on pain and suffering and tragedy in their life and say, I am a better person for experiencing that. It doesn't always happen. It's pure grace that anyone can look back on tragedy and, and be even somewhat grateful for the ways that it shaped them to be more like Christ. There are terrible things that I've gone through that I would never want to go through again and never would wish upon anyone else that I honestly at this point am glad that I went through because it, it has made me who I am today. But I also don't believe that God <laughs> wanted those things to happen or that he wanted me to suffer. I think it's grace that he used those terrible things in my life to bring about good. Grace over narcissism. That's what we're talking about here. I hope you see the difference between these two views of God's role in suffering. And I hope you keep this distinction in mind the next time you find yourself or someone you love suffering. We can debate all day why God created a world in which suffering exists. But that doesn't change the fact that it does exist. The mere presence of pain and suffering doesn't mean that they're God's will. It doesn't mean that he wants you or, or anyone to suffer. Because God is love, God is always working to redeem, to restore, to make new, to bring about good in all things which by his grace includes the pain, suffering, and tragedy that we all experience.